And I, I, I equate this to the, to the hashtag Me Too because a lot of men are saying, well, what, why are, you know, all these women are speaking up. Like, guess what? Women have been dealing with sexism, patriarchy, misogyny for centuries. And so why would they not all of a sudden say, if one person opens a door, Gerardo Burke, a black woman, created the term Me Too in 2006, let's be clear about that. Other women have come through that door. Why wouldn't all these women say, hey, enough is enough? Which is what black folks are saying when we say black lives matter. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to author and activist Kevin Powell about his new book of essays, My Mother, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and The Last Stand of the Angry White Man. Yes, there is a sports component to this. We'll try to tease it out in this interview. But sincerely, this interview is fantastic. It already happened. We did it in front of a terrific crowd at a bookstore here in Washington, D.C., and cannot wait to share it with all of you. Also, I've got some choice words about Vontae Davis, the man who retired at halftime of an NFL game. Also, I've Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, Kaepernick Watch, and more. But first, let's go to Solid State Bookstore at 600 H Street Northeast for my interview with Kevin Powell. I just first of all want to put uh, my cards on the table. I'm one of the blurbers of this book, and I wrote, make no mistake about it, whether writing about Harvey Weinstein, his mother, or American football, this book is hip-hop in the best sense of the phrase, and that it challenges the reader to step outside of themselves. So I love this book, and I can even just leave it at that. But there's a lot that I want to explore with you. I love Dave Zirin, one of our best sports writers in the country. Can give him a round of applause. And if you haven't seen it today, he has a great piece about Serena Williams in the New York Daily News. You can read it all online. A really powerful piece about race and gender and intersectionality, the two of Serena Williams. I think Serena Williams might come up in this interview. We'll see. Um, And one thing, too, if people see that I'm looking on my phone, it's not because I'm tweeting or playing Candy Crush during this. It's because my questions are on here and my printer wasn't working. So just so you know, phone is out. It is not... uh, an act of rudeness. But Kevin, I did want to ask you, I mean, you've written, I believe, 13 books. 13, yeah. So, which is, this yeah. is number 13. And so, I just, I really wanted to ask you why this book, why now, and what binds these essays together? It's a great question. I mean, before I answer that, I just want to thank Laura, Jake, and Scott. I don't know where Scott is, but can we give a round of applause for this wonderful bookstore? And the store's been open three months, is that right, you all? This is a beautiful space, and I just encourage y'all to please come back and support this store. Uh, when we reached out to them, they immediately responded, and that's why I'm here. I just want to thank y'all from the bottom of my heart, and, and hopefully more writers, authors will come through here. Please support this store, they're doing great work. Um, this book was not planned. About a year ago, Simon Schuster, my publisher, said, hey, how's that Tupac Shakur biography doing? And I said, well, you know, it's coming. It's coming. Um, and honestly, the honest God truth is that uh, writing is hard. I've never written a biography before. You know, I've been a writer for a very long time. And I've been reading a lot of biographies of different people, you know, Marvin Gaye, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, uh, Marilyn Monroe, you name it. I've just been absorbing iconic figures so I can get in the mindset of two, writing this book on Tupac, who I uh, interviewed many times when he was alive when I was working at Bob Magazine back in the 90s. But as the, 
as this country was things were unfolding, like Charlottesville last year, and I was writing a series of blogs, I said, you know what? I really want to bring these blogs together. I was originally going to actually self-publish this book with, uh, on, on, online and just do leave it at that, but I talked to Simon Schuster and said, look, I really want to do a book, a uh, collection of stuff. Uh, so most of the pieces are already published, but then I wrote the title essay, My Mother, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and the last stand of the angry white man, um, uh, just to talk about a few things that have been on my chest. Anyone who follows me on social media knows I've been talking about my mother a lot the last couple of years, you know, dealing with her illness. And then I said, wait a minute, my mother is a uh, working class black woman, so what better way to talk about race and gender and class through the, than through the lens of my mother? And I dreamed the uh, title, actually, you know? which seems to scare some people when they see the last part that the angry black, angry white man. And I, you know, I said, well, this is what I dreamed, I wanna roll with it. And the cover is actually not the original cover, I don't wanna tell you what the original cover was, but I think it scared the publisher, and so they said, no, Kevin, we can't do that cover too, you know. And it made me think about musical artists that I love who've had issues with titles of their albums and you know, images on their covers, and I just kinda, of, you know, we agreed to a compromise, and that's where it happened. What ties it together? Um, I hope telling the truth about what's happening in this country around race, gender, class, uh, you know, weaving in stories about, about football, American football through the lens of Cam Newton, uh, weaving in pieces about Tupac Shakur and Tribe Called Quest and uh, the late prodigy, weaving in pieces about you know, Harvey Weinstein and this whole phenomenon that is known as Meeks, hashtag Me Too. Um, and the, the death of Muhammad Ali. The death of Muhammad Ali. Jay-Z. Jay-Z's 444 album is a long piece about that album, you know, and, and, and what I kind of consider his version of his, his hip-hop version of what's going on and the honesty that he was forced to confront because of Lemonade and Solange's album. So I just, you know, I wanted to write a book that was about where we really are in this country, but also talk about the historical part of it. There's a piece in there called, um, you know, will racism ever end? Will I, I, will I, will I ever stop being an N-I-G-G-E-R? Which is a long meditation about America and racism. You know, so it's, it's from the heart. Um, and I just, you know, I, I love writing what we call blogs now, but essays. You know, my, my sheroes and heroes are people like Bell Hooks, like James Baldwin, like Norman Mailer, uh, 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 Gloria Stein. And folks that have written these kind of pieces, Joan did the great Doug Joan did it, who I love as a writer. Uh, the, the late great Audre Lorde, you know, who wrote these great pieces. Um, and I just wanted well, to interview. Who I interviewed, Audre Lorde. Yeah. I did the last interview with Audre Lorde in 1983 before she died via mm -hmm. telephone. And what they all have in common is that they're, they're truth tellers. And I wanted to write a piece that I felt would be uh, honest about where we are in this country. So that's what I feel connected to. Yeah, I, I myself had this surreal, it's not surreal, it's even the right word, but this very emotional experience uh, reading this book this week while the story unfolded in Dallas of the young man yeah. who was shot and killed uh, by a police officer. First, the story was that she entered uh, what she thought was her apartment and shot what she thought was an intruder. People might have seen, now stories are today, that she was banging on his door before killing him. Botam Jean, Jean, I believe his name is. Botam Jean. And I wanted to ask you, like, what is it going to take to see substantive change in this country with regards to race and racism? Wow, one of the um, essays in the book, my wife and I were in Connecticut uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, 4th of July break. We went to, we had a, somebody who was kind of to uh, give us a place for free, and we thought we were just getting away. It happened to be the same weekend that um, uh, Alton Sterling got killed in Louisiana, and Philander Castile got killed in Minnesota. And here we are, you know, as black people in 2018, 2017, 2016, unfortunately in this country, having to have conversations, my wife and I. You know, what are we gonna do if we're stopped by the police? You know, 
uh, you know, what are we going to say? You know, we got to be mindful of everything. And those two killings while we were on vacation was bad enough, but then we were at a dinner, having dinner, we were sitting on the balcony, the porch, whatever you call it, in Connecticut, not South Carolina, where my family's originally from, in Connecticut, and a pickup truck drove by, and there was a huge Confederate flag sticking out of, the, out of that pickup truck. And that was the final straw from in Connecticut. My wife and I was like, you know what, let's pack it up, let's just go back to Brooklyn, son. Let's just get up out of here. You know, and this is where we are, and this is what I say to people, uh, my white sisters and brothers who may not understand this, is that, you know, we as black people, people of color, have constantly have, have to watch our, watch our backs. You know, I was talking to one of my friends the other day, he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm tired of looking over my shoulder, man. I'm tired of looking over my shoulder. I'm, I, this is an exhaustion, a physical exhaustion, a mental exhaustion, a spiritual exhaustion, you know, that, that you feel because of the racism. It, it hits you from every angle. And I don't know about you all, all these last couple of years, you know, watching all this stuff on social media, which is why at this point, I, I can't even, you know, it does something to you. You know what I'm saying? It does something to you very profound, you know, to, 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 to Thing. And I've been, I've been an activist, let me make this very clear, I've been an activist doing fighting this fight for over 30 years since I was a youth. This is my life, you know what I mean? And I've dealt with racial profiling cases, I've dealt with police brutality cases, but I can't lie to y'all and say that over the last couple of years, even in the last year, I feel a, a profound kind of sadness and exhaustion that I've never felt before because it just seems that it's coming from every single angle. You know, the young lady sleeping in her dorm, someone calls the police on her. The sister who's at the barbecue in Oakland, they call the police on her. You know what I'm saying? The brothers who are having a meeting at Starbucks, the police are called on them. The brother playing basketball with a white brother in Virginia, he fouled the white brother too hard, the police are called on him. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, and what, what, what my white sisters and brothers don't realize, don't think about is that when you call the police on black people like that, you're immediately jeopardizing their lives. You know what I'm saying? And, and you know, it's not that, that black people, I will speak for myself, we're not anti-police, but we're anti our bad police. Right. We're anti-people who have a clear hatred for us and see us as, as something to be, as less than human beings. Right. And if you know the history of this country, which I lay out in this book over and over again, you know that this is a pattern. I mean, my great great, great my great grandfather was murdered for his 400 acres of land in the low country of South Carolina, you know, because he was a black man who had the audacity to own land, you know, in that in that part of the country, and they pressured him and he refused to sell. So one day his wife got a knock on the door and she was told he choked on some food. He was also a chef in the area, he prepared food for white folks and black folks. They lied, they killed him, and then took 397 of the 400 acres of land and left my great-grandmother with just three acres, which is the same property that my mother ended up being born on. You know what I mean? And so when you know this kind of history, and the thing that bothers me too, when I can bring to Serena Williams for a second, you know, what people have to understand is, from my opinion, Serena wasn't just responding to the umpire at the US Open last weekend. She was responding to 20 years of, of, of a history where she and her sister Venus have been discriminated against racially and gender-wise over and over again, you know, called all kinds of names, disrespected in every kind of way imaginable, as they were doing everything they could to be the best champions possible, you know what I'm saying? And on top of that, fighting for the rights of women, all women, not just black women, and tennis to get equal pay to the men, which is the right thing to do. You know what I mean? And so what we also have to understand, and I, I, I equate this to the, to the hashtag Me Too, because a lot of men are saying, well, what, why are, you know, all these women are speaking up. Like, guess what? Women have been dealing with sexism, patriarchy, misogyny for centuries. And so why would they not all of a sudden say, if one person opens a door, Javonna Burke, a black woman, created the term Me Too in 2006, Let's be clear about that. Other women have come through that door. Why wouldn't all these women say, hey, enough is enough? 
which is what black folks are saying when we say black lives matter. That's right. Now, one of, one of the binding points in a lot of the essays in this book is the crisis of political leadership to actually take on these problems. Huh. I know you spoke today at the Congressional Black Caucus. I did. I was hoping maybe you could speak about where you think the state of political resistance leadership is and what it's gonna take for that leadership to actually blossom into something that can push back against this reaction. Let, let me say this first of all. Um, is anyone here, anyone here old enough to have members of 1968? Because I don't. Much respect to our elders that are here. Give them a round of applause, please. Let me say this. Um, two of my heroes are Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, for very different reasons. Dr. King, because, um, you know, one of the simple of this man sacrificed his life for all of us. You know, number two, if you look at his 13 year career from 1954, 55 to 68 when he was assassinated, and we know the civil rights movement was just him, it was Malcolm, it was Fannie Hamer, it was Ella Baker, it was a whole host of women and men, you know, younger people and older people. But Dr. King had a very clear vision. I mean, we want civil rights, get the civil rights bill 64. We want voting rights, get the voting rights act 65. People act like he didn't do anything after that. It's just he's all of a sudden he's dead, but we, we forget from 65 to the end of his life, what did he talk about most more than anything else? Economic justice, economic justice, poor people's campaign, poor people's campaign. He came out against the war, war in Vietnam. You know, how are, we going to send, how are we going to send poor blacks and poor whites to fight poor yellow people, Asian people, in a place called Vietnam? So it was a very clear vision. He was about the people. He was about the people. Bobby Kennedy became my hero when I realized, wait a minute, the Bobby Kennedy that a lot of people thought was an a-hole, which he was, when he was attorney general, even before that, when his brother was assassinated on national TV, John Kennedy, the president, Bobby Kennedy shifted. Why? Because he, he had, it was a traumatizing experience for him to lose his brother, his best friend. And I believe that led to the empathy and compassion that Bobby had for all people for the rest of his life. And the great irony is that Dr. King is killed in April 68. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy is killed. And since then, I feel like we've had such a crisis of leadership in this country. Y'all with me out there? You know, where it's become, like, leadership has been reduced to Democrat and Republican. You have to be an elected official. Well, what position did Dr. King actually hold? And I would argue that Bobby Kennedy did some of his most important work, not as a United States Senator from New York, but when he created the Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation, when he was working with poor people around the country and talking about these issues as someone who just cared about people, regardless if he's going to get reelected or not, regardless if he's, if he's going to be President of the United States or not. And I feel like what we reduce leadership to is either a faith-based leader or an elected official, as if no one has to be a leader, which is actually dangerous. And what I said today, what I said today at the Congressional Black Caucus, because the conversation kept going, voting, voting, voting was the only way that we can be empowered. And I said to myself, and luckily there were some millennials on the program as well, Brother Dave, who said, well, voting and what else? You know what I'm saying? But when someone else is telling you this is the only way to be politically empowered, I mean, I was sitting there thinking to myself, oh my God, before the civil rights movement, black folks were living in segregated America. We owned more black businesses, more black, but yeah. black home ownership. You know, we had our HBCUs. We had all these things that we owned, you know, even as we were not getting the vote. So you're going to tell me that voting is the only way to be empowered. There's something wrong with that. What I said today, which I say tonight, is that if you have a, a handy person, she, he, they come to your home, they're supposedly there to fix your home. Would you want that person in your house if they open up their toolbox and the only thing in their toolbox is a screwdriver? This, how could they possibly fix anything? You know what I mean? And so if we're talking about leadership, voting 
organizing, resisting all kinds of systemic oppression. You know, there's many forms of leadership. It's not just voting. And I think that we, we it's like Einstein said, that insanity is saying and doing the same stuff over and over again, expecting a different result. I have been a political activist since Ronald Reagan was president. I've heard the same stuff over and over again. If you just vote, if you just vote, if you just vote. I'm here to tell y'all, when I was in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, two weeks ago, I did a speech there about voting and young people. A young black male got up who was a veteran of the military. We said, thank you for your service, sir. And then you know what he said to us, this person who had served in the military? I'm apathetic and I have no desire to vote because I don't know what I'm voting for and who I'm voting for. And some folks were taken aback by it, but I said, hold on, let's listen to this young man because what we like to do is shout people down if they don't agree with the party line, quote unquote. And he said basically, because they all seem the same to me. They all seem to be about money. Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. He said, what do they actually stand for? And what I'm saying to you all, as someone who actually even ran for Congress in New York, where I'm from in 2008, 2010, what I began to realize really quickly, if you don't have a lot of money, you know, if you don't uh, align yourself with certain people, you know, if you don't get in bed with certain people, then you're not gonna get supported, which has nothing to do with democracy. It's actually called an oligarchy, which is power in the hands of a few people. And what I believe in is democracy, which is one person, one vote, we're all equal here. I don't care what your race, your gender, your gender identity, your class, your ability, your disability, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Christian, if you're atheist, agnostic, this should be a real democracy. You know what I'm saying? But instead, we have people going back and forth, fighting over crumbs, and I'm saying, that's not democracy. That's not democracy. And if you take away the abolitionist movement, if you take away union movements, if you take away the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement, you'd have to ask yourself, what kind of country would this actually have been without any level of resistance? There you go. And you know, in that answer, I feel like the name that goes unspoken is President Obama. Mm. Uh, and so I have to ask you about wh where is his legacy in this continuum of we're hearing the same thing over and over again, we, we need to find new ways of resisting. Yeah. And then of course there are these two analyses of the Obama era. There's this idea that, oh, he went too far and that's what scared people into the arms of Trump. And then there's another analysis that he did not go far enough. And because he didn't go far enough, he left people with half a meal basically, mm. and which pushed a section of the population either towards apathy um, or in some cases towards even voting for Trump. Where, where do you see President Obama's legacy in this political analysis? I have to start with my mother first and foremost, again, because the first name in the book is my mother. Yep, it's not Obama. Because it's my mother. Because my mother's the first leader and teacher I ever met. I want to be clear about that. She, with her eighth grade education, you know, she who doesn't read books, but she who took me to the library when I was eight years old and said, you have to read, you have to read, which is why I'm a writer. My mother has never prominently displayed any black people on her wall until Michelle and Barack got into the White House. Unless you count the crooked preachers that we went to church, the church we went to. And I'm being serious about it, because why my mother has been educated in this country where you believe that Jesus is white, so Jesus is on the wall, the white Jesus. You know, you go to some black households, there's Dr. King and the two Kennedy brothers. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Along with our gents and our Ebony magazines, you know what I'm saying? But my mother never really looked at, I mean, think about the world she came from. She was born in 1943. You know, she wasn't woke the way some of us are woke, and so you taught black self-hatred very early on. This is what the educational system teaches us. This is what the mass media culture teaches us. I mean, here I am as a writer, 
kindergarten through 12th grade, I had no idea that black writers existed, or Latino writers, or Asian writers, or Native American writers. I barely even knew that women writers existed except for Emily Dickinson. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And so why is this important? It means something symbolically for my mother and people like my mother, black people like my mother, which is why I say to black people who go off from Barack Obama, how does your mama feel about Barack Obama? How does your grandmama feel about Barack Obama? Why did Barack Obama matter in America and the Caribbean and Africa and all wherever black people around the world when he won in November of 2008? Why did that matter to so many black people? You know, one thing we can't afford to do, those of us who claim to be so woke, is to be so out of touch with the people we claim to be representing that we don't understand why people love Michelle Barack. You, mean, you know what I mean? The way people love Serena Williams and Venus Williams. You know what I'm saying? The way people love Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis. We need symbolic victories, particularly in the face of a historic thing called white supremacy. You know what I'm saying? That said, Barack Obama was president of the United States. And we should know, if we, you know, we are, if we're students of American history, that the president of the United States is basically a spokesperson for the money interests of the country. That's what it's about. And so it doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. You know, it matters, you know, who puts you in office and what their interests are, which is why Barack Obama dropped as many bombs on people as George W. Bush did, which is why the Obama administration kicked more people out of the country, immigrants, than any administration before his administration. Are y'all with me out there? It doesn't mean that I dislike Barack Obama. I love Michelle and Barack Obama, but we need to also tell the truth, which is why I don't put my interest in political figures 100%. I'm like, if you ask me, well, who do I follow? They got names like Bell Hooks. You know what I mean? They got names like Dr. King and Malcolm X and Fannie Lou and Ella Baker because I realized the real change that has ever happened in this country's history does not come from political figures. It comes from the people. Henry Dumas, the great poet, said, what news from the bottom? What news from the people? The people make change happen. People always talk about, well, Lyndon Johnson did X, Y, and Z in the 1960s. Lyndon Johnson only passed that legislation because of the energy of the people. Because what movement means is mass energy of people. And so as I was sitting on that panel today, the Congressional Black Caucus, everyone kept saying voting, voting, voting. I'm like, y'all are missing your own history, which is none of this would have happened without the energy, the movement of the people. Are y'all with me out there? You know, and so I will agree that it was an amazing rainbow coalition of people who put Barack Obama into the White House, but then people sat around expecting someone who's inside the system to do all the stuff afterwards. And that was simply not going to happen because his job was not to be a movement leader. His job was to be a politician, which is two different things. It's two different things entirely. You know what I mean? And I put some of that on us because we were like, oh, change is here now. No. This was one victory for one person. You know what I'm saying? But if you want something to happen, the question becomes, what are you willing to do in your local communities? I don't care if you work in corporate America, if you work in nonprofit sector, wherever you work, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice to change this? Otherwise, nothing's going to happen. That's the reality. You know what I mean? And so when I hear people say, well, Barack Obama didn't do this and didn't do that, I'm like, well, guess what? That's not his job. That's your job. And then the last thing I need to say is, people ask me all the time, are you surprised about Donald Trump? What we have to understand also is American history. Civil War happened, there was a backlash. There was a huge backlash. As you saw the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments happening, this is why those of us who live in America or call ourselves Americans, we do ourselves a great disservice by not knowing basic American history. You know what I mean? It's not to be arrogant or anything like that, but like, why would I live somewhere and I don't know the history of that place? And I'm saying to you all, okay, the Civil War happened, the amendments happened, there were power, there were white supremacists in this country, including in the United States government, who said, oh no, 
after these 12 years of reconstruction, 1865 to 1877, we're going to cut a deal with Rutherford B. Hayes. We're going to pull the troops out of the South. And guess what, black folks? Here's Jim Crow. Here's segregation. Here's 100 years of domestic terrorism. It was during that time that my great-grandfather, who had 400 acres of land, was killed in South Carolina. Are you with me out there? Civil rights movement happens from the 50s to the 1960s. When you think about it, black people were only asking for a few basic things. Can we vote? Can we vote? And can we move around without fear of being killed simply because of the color of our skin? Real basic stuff. We weren't asking for a whole a bunch of stuff. Can we just be human beings? Can we, live, can we go to schools we want to go to? Can we live in a neighborhood we want to live in? Almost immediately after Dr. King in April 68, Bobby Kennedy in June of 68 get killed, the movement is basically dying at that point, you began to see this backlash. What was the backlash? Richard Nixon gets elected president in 1968 under the guise of law and order. What was the backlash? Over the next 12 years, you began to see attacks on civil rights, including affirmative action for the first time in the 1970s. That is still going on today with a case at Harvard University. What was the backlash? A actor, someone who played in movies named Ronald Reagan, got elected president in 1980, and that launched what became known as the Reagan Revolution and the conservative movement. Are y'all with me out there? How do I know this? Because when I was a college student in the 1980s in at Rutgers University, one of the things that we did is they put us on buses, youth leaders, and sent us to places like Alabama to re-register black voters in Alabama and what they called the Black Belt in the 1980s during the Reagan years because they were being deregistered just less than 20 years after the Civil Rights Movement. Sounds familiar. Sounds very, very familiar. But if we don't remember history, you know, if we don't think about this stuff, if we don't connect the dots, sisters and brothers, which is the whole point of this book, it's like Ralph Ellison said in Invisible Man, history becomes a boomerang hitting you in the head over and over again. And then we'll say things like, how did Donald Trump get elected? Donald Trump is just a continuation of Barry Goldwater in 64, Nixon 68, Reagan Revolution, the two George Bushes. There's no difference between any of them, but because he's so more outrageous, he's more outspoken, he's raw, we think this is some sort of aberration. And what I'm saying, y'all, this is not an aberration at all. Not even remotely. This has been going on nonstop because the conservatives have been organized and resisting anything that would lead to a progressive, multi-generational, multicultural movement in this country. They want you to hate each other because you're white, you're black, you're straight, you're queer. Y'all feel what I'm saying? They want you to be against each other if you're wealthy, if you're poor, if you're able-bodied, if you're disabled. They want us as men to not even understand that manhood should not be predicated on the oppression of women. Are y'all with me out there? And they want us to attack women and hate women and disregard women, you know what I'm saying? And then we're fighting each other because who wins when all of us are fighting each other? That small percentage of people that really control everything. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's an essay. Oh, people clap. Yeah! There's, there's this one essay, uh, in, in the book called Letter to a Young Man, where you speak about something that you just ended on, and I really want you to speak about this, which is the importance of redefining manhood. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how has manhood been defined? How do we teach manhood, and how does it need to be redefined? I mean, God. <laughs> this is, um, I mean, this is like part of your life's work, yeah. is that question. I mean, here I was raised by my mother, you know, my aunt, my grandmother's the matriarch of the family, you would think instinctively, you know, women are equals, women are equals, women are equals, women are equals, women are equals. No, because if you're going to a religious institution, as I did, women are not in leadership positions. Women are able to lie, lie into the pulpit. Women are not allowed to do anything. Women are told how they can and cannot dress at the churches that I went to. 
If you go into the kind of schools that I went to, K through 12, which were the best schools in Jersey City, the Latinx schools, where all the so-called smart kids went, as I said earlier, K through 12, I learned that Betsy Ross sold a flag. I learned about Helen Keller, I had no idea who she was. You know, I don't know if Betsy Ross even sold a flag, to be honest with you, they, they told us. And you learn about Rosa Parks, because she does double duty, she's black history and women's history. And that's the totality, we're laughing, but you wanna understand rape culture, that's the totality of the education that boys to men get around the contributions of women to this world, to this country. And so why wouldn't it be unusual for us as boys if you got it happening in the mass media culture, in the educational system, you know, in your own family, you just see patriarchy everywhere. One of my uh, sisters, Jamila Bay, uh, said yesterday on her show, you know, that we are bathed in patriarchy, we're bathed in sexism. And I remember, I, I tell one story, I think in this book about uh, us boys, when I, two stories, one, and some of y'all have may have experienced it, where the boys are just roaming around schools grabbing girls' body parts. That's called rape culture. But no one ever stopped us. No one said anything. You know, we just did it. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing I think about is how if a girl was perceived to be loose, quote unquote, we automatically labeled her with the H word, H-O. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, and I think about, there was a, there was a girl whose name, I, 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 I'm embarrassed to say, I don't even know her real name, but they, her name in the neighborhood was Hori Dory, because that's what the boys labeled her. Meanwhile, boys could do anything we want to do. That's called toxic manhood. That's called patriarchy, sexism, misogyny. But none of us, myself included, learned any of that. And then I played sports growing up. I played baseball formerly. I ran track formerly. We did everything on the block. And Brother Dave knows what I'm talking about. He's one of our best sports writers in the country. It was inside sports culture where we would say all kinds of sexist and homophobic terms to each other and boys didn't throw the ball a certain kind of way or run a certain kind of way. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So it's like we were policing each other without realizing it. And then if you're like me, you get to college where the first week in college, I was told by upper class students, hey, yo, there's so much sex happening on this campus that we don't even have electricity to keep the lights on. You know what I mean? And so basically you're being told it's open season on the young women on the college campus. Are y'all with me out there? You know, and this is the work that I now do that Dave's talking about, but I didn't know this at 18 years old. I didn't know this at 19 years old. I didn't know this at 20 years old. I simply followed the script that was given to me and it led to very destructive behavior. And what I'm saying to you all, as I'm listening to my wife, Jenna Parker, she has a show called She, A Choreo Play, which is about ending violence against women and girls. And I hear all these women who are in the show who are survivors, including my wife. I hear all the women who come to the show who say, I'm a survivor too. And they're every race. I'm saying to myself, my God, my God, you know, we as men, and it came up in the Congressional Black Caucus today. One woman got up and she felt uncomfortable for it, but she said, I need to say this. As we're talking about civil rights and human rights and all these different things, is anyone going to address the fact that how abused women are in these different movements? Mm. You know? And so my position to the men out there, even if you're not the kind of man who would ever put your hands on a woman, curse out a woman, call her all kinds of names, if you would, even if you're not the kind of man who would do a Harvey Weinstein or a Bill Cosby or a Leslie movement, What's his name? Movies. All these different men who have been exposed in the last six months, last year. You've got the kind of man who do any of this kind of stuff, but you have men around you, in your family, in your fraternity, in your religious institution, at your job, in the military service, right next to you in the same barrack, and you say nothing about it. We as men become just as guilty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the onus is not on the women. We have to end the sexism because we benefit from it. And it's just like today with the news of Brett Kavanaugh yeah. in the Supreme Court, if people heard about that, about revelations yeah. of attempted rape when he was in high school. And that's the rape part. The rape culture part is when you immediately see so many people running to cover for him, yeah. not even investigating, like in real time almost. It's like within minutes, there was like a list of 65 women who knew Brett Kavanaugh in high school. 
I, I didn't know 65. <laughs> know how they got that list in an hour. And, just like, and he went to an all-boys school. Just like they, just like, just like 43% of the voters for Donald Trump are white women who clearly are invested in racism and sexism, you know, you'll see people that will defend their own, uh, the depression of themselves to protect power and privilege. That, that's, what, that's what this is about. And I, I'll be remiss about it, I'll say this. I didn't come to this on my own. In the early 1990s, I was challenged by women. Women from schools like Spelman College, women who are older women who had said, yo, you have to think differently. How can you talk about racism, Kevin Powell? How can you claim to be an activist, Kevin Powell? How can you claim about being, being about service, Kevin Powell? And you're helping to oppress half the community. It's real simple. It's real simple. I mean, we're speaking about a crisis of political leadership. We're speaking about manhood and how people wrestle with manhood. And of course, this leads me to wanting to ask you about uh, Tupac Amaru Shakur. Uh, that's a chapter in the book right here about Tupac. Um, it's been said for so long that you're working on this biography. Of I was Tupac. avoiding it for so long. Avoiding, I, I, I want you to talk about that too, about the difficulties in putting it together. We just passed the anniversary of the death of Tupac. Two days ago. Two days ago. Well, two days ago, 14 or 15? It was yesterday. He yeah. died September 13th, 96. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it, it raises this question about uh, who's the Tupac you knew? What do you think were, were, was the potential in Tupac to become as we talk about this crisis of political leadership? And what are the lessons that we need to take with us so it's not just about genuflecting or wearing t-shirts, but really learning something from the life of Tupac Shakur? Yes, uh, can I say this first? We have some seats, can y'all come on in? We got seats, just come on in, please. We got seats, please. Very well. Come on in. We got seats. Don't be scared. <laughs> What's up, y'all? As we're saying this, I, I I read your essay about Tupac. I was thinking about coming tonight, and Changes comes on the radio. That's crazy. I couldn't even listen to it because it made me too mm. emotional. I mean, th there's a lot of vulnerability in this. Yeah. Book. Well, let me let me let me say this. Um, so, uh, Quincy Jones, the legendary Quincy Jones. Um, has children in my generation, Generation X. Um, and in the late 80s, early 90s, it was kind of evident that hip hop, by that point, we knew, those are sort of diehard hip hop heads, no hip hop had been around way before the late 80s, early 90s. But he, there was an understanding that this culture's not going anywhere. This culture is here to stay. And so Quincy decided to start a magazine, you know, that became known as Vibe Magazine. Um, and I got an opportunity to write the cover story for the very first issue on Tretch of Noy by Nature. This is the year of OPP and all that stuff, you know. And then we, the, the man, that issue sold out. If you have a copy of that issue, you should save it. It's worth a lot of money now, like for real. Oh, I do too. You do too? Yeah, I guess it was a handful. Wow. And so when we gathered back about six months later after that in 93, this is, wow, 25 years ago, which is crazy to me. And the thing I need to say too, you know, because one of the conversations that happened today, the Congressional Black Caucus and Respect the Young People, Quincy Jones was about 59 years old when he co-founded Five Magazine. All of us who worked at the magazine, we were all under 30. We were all in our 20s for the most part. And so I say to old people there, respect younger people, respect the genius of younger people, you know what I'm saying? And we, as young people, made Vibe in the 1990s the biggest, uh, the most popular magazine in the country during that time. When we got back from the meeting, um, they asked us who do we want to write about. Because I'm an activist, I knew the Shakur name, 
You know what I'm saying? Obviously, Asada Shakur. You know what I mean? Matula Shakur, political prisoner. Y'all feel what I'm saying? I knew who Fanny Shakur, his mother was. I said, well, I want to write about Tupac Shakur. I had a big folder, you know what I'm saying? This is way before cloud and social media and all this stuff. And the editors were like, okay, who's that? They hadn't seen Juice. They didn't know who he was. You know, unless you were a diehard hip hop fan, you didn't know who Tupac was. And so they said, well, what about Snoop Dogg? I was like, okay. And Snoop was the biggest rapper at the time because of the crime with Dr. Dre and everything. And so I did the piece, but then Pac got in trouble. Something happened with Pac, because Pac ended up getting in trouble a lot between 93 and 96 when he got killed. And so they came back to me and they said, are you still interested in Tupac Shakur? I said, words, son, absolutely, you know what I mean? And that's where we did the first cover story with him in a straitjacket, which Pac posed for. And what pissed me off was that they had on the cover is Tupac crazy, which bothered me. You know, we had a big argument back and forth, myself and the editors about that. But it began this three-year relationship with Tupac. I met him in Atlanta in, in March of 1993, and Pac knew who I was because he had seen me on MTV's Real World, the first season. I didn't he was a fan of mine when I was a fan of his, and he said, I had, I had your back on that show. And I said, word, can I interview? And that's how it started. And he said something to me very interesting when I met Pac. He said, um, I want you to be Al Taylor to my Malcolm X. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, well, what if I want to be Malcolm X, bro? <laughs> Malcolm's my hero, you know what I'm saying? And, but it's almost like Pac knew he was not going to live a long time and that I need to have this recorded. And I need to bring it back a bit. You know, I'm a pop culture junkie. I'm a TV child. So you better believe I grew up with stories about James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. You know, when I was a kid, I remember when John Lennon died. I remember when John Lennon died and the impact, I didn't understand at the time, but years later I was like, wow, John Lennon from the Beatles died, this is significant. Or when Marvin Gaye got killed, my mother cried, and I was trying to understand, but years later I understood why my mother cried. When Bob Marley died, people were like, Bob Marley died. I had no idea that Tupac was gonna become one of those people, y'all feel me? Yeah. And so, you know, it, 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 it took my life in a whole other direction, and I don't wanna give away the essay in the book or the book that I'm writing now, but it was traumatic to live through all of that. You know what I mean? It was traumatic to live through all the East Coast, West, West Coast stuff. It was traumatic to actually be there in Vegas the day that his death was announced. I have not been to Vegas since September 13, 1996. I have to go back now because I'm working on this biography of Tupac. People have asked me for years, when are you gonna write this biography of Tupac? Well, guess what, y'all? Six months after Tupac got killed, Biggie gets killed. You feel what I'm saying? And as someone who was literally in the middle of all of that, you, it took me on a, it took me years just to even process all of that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I saw this classic divide and conquer what was going on, yeah. and y'all can read between the lines of all of that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But in the last couple of years, I just said, you know what? Too many people are asking me, like so many backgrounds. I was in Ireland a few years ago. Irish brother, uh, great writer there, uh, named Dean. You know, we're kicking it in Dublin, and um. He said, can I tell you something? And I said, what? He said, man, Tupac is the biggest rapper in Ireland. I said, bro, Tupac is dead. He said, it doesn't matter. And I, I began to realize, you know, this is serious. I was in Barbados, Jackie Francis, years ago. My friend Jackie Francis, Roots in Barbados. Somehow or another, I was in St. Michael, St. Michael's Parish. Word got around, the writer from Vibe is here. A brother, a Bayesian brother came up with a Tupac t-shirt on. He said, yo, when I was in jail, I was reading your Tupac articles here in Barbados. That blew my mind. A couple years back, I'm at an elite private school in the Bay Area of California. I, all majority white sisters and brothers. Young white brother sat in the front row by the day. He had a Tupac Shakur t-shirt. He wasn't even born when Tupac was alive. <laughs> Turns out his father at the time was the CEO of eBay. Oh, wow. 
And this young man was a massive Tupac Shakur fan. And do I think Pac was the greatest rapper ever? No. Do I think that he could have become a great rapper? Possibly, but I actually think Pac's real calling was acting. I think he, he was, I think he would have surpassed Denzel and some of the folks that came before him. Uh, do I think Pac would have become a leader in the traditional sense? I don't know. I feel like his work would have been through the arts, but I think Pac was going to be one of those people like Paul Robeson, you know, because he had the background with his mother and the Black Panther Party, he was always going to speak out about social issues. You know what I'm saying? But we never know what could have happened. And so it's been actually difficult um, writing this Tupac book, which is another reason why I'm glad that I slipped that in there, because I had to take mental breaks. I've interviewed a lot of people who have not spoken before about Tupac. Sometimes in the interviews, I've cried. Sometimes they've cried, sometimes we've cried together. I mean, it's, it's that heavy, you know, and I feel the spirit all around me. Once I agree that I'm, I'm gonna do this book, there's no way that you cannot, you, you can't do it without doing a deep dive. And you know, because you've written about major figures like Jim Brown, the legendary football player. And so, you know, and as you know, writing is uh, hard, man. People think that, you know, you can just, it's like my wife's a dancer, people are like, well, you're a dancer, just dance. You just don't dance, you just don't write. You know what I mean? It's a process of creating art. You know, it's, if you're a visual artist, you know, you have to be inspired. You know what I mean? And you gotta be in a certain headspace, and I'm there now, but I'm gonna tell y'all, um, it is hard to, to, to go on this journey, even though I'm only live 25 years, because you, you know what the end of the story is. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. read this and whether you're writing about Tupac or whether you're writing about Prince or whether you're writing about masculinity, there's a lot of vulnerability in terms of what you put yourself into this. You know, you write in the first person a lot. You say I a lot in terms of speaking about how you emotionally are responding to different stimuli in the music or in a movement or if somebody is killed or something your mother said to you. Is it easier to be vulnerable on the page or vulnerable with the people in your life? Huh. Well, I, I, I thank God for years of therapy. <laughs> we used to say prayer works, now we realize therapy and prayer works. <laughs> I mean, wellness though, would you say? A whole lot of meditation. I mean, what'd you say? You said herb? You said you mean marijuana? Oh my God. Is it legal here? Yeah. It's not illegal in New York City. You said sometimes. Who really knows the law in here? Neighborhood. Oh, is it legal? Now. Now. It's now. It's now. It's decriminalized. It's decriminalized. You can't sell it, per se. You can give it away. It's been gentrified. No, we need this. 
when I get home tonight, when I'm on the train back to New York, I'm going to say, what I talked about my book signing was the legalization of weed in D.C. <laughs> that was the topic. <laughs> I will do this. Mental wellness. What was the question? It's about vulnerability. And is it easier to express it on the page or with the people in your life? And is writing that kind of catharsis for you, or is it yeah. a holistic process where you've got to be real with the people around you and then it reflects itself on the page? It's both. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't joking. Uh, years of therapy. Years of therapy. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, like I said, my mama started taking to the library when I was eight years old, so I fell in love with books. The first books I read were sports books, because I do believe if you're gonna go from being a non-lover of books to a lover of books, you should read things that you actually love. And what did I love was sports as a child. I love, to this day, I love sports. This is why I read this brother's work religiously. Um, and at some point, um, I discovered a writer named Ernest Hemingway, for whom the bell tolls when I was 11 years old. And I remember saying to myself, you know, being a child of the ghetto, of the inner city of poverty, word, if the bell ain't tolling for me, who is it tolling for? You know, how do we get out of this poverty? And so writing has always been a way for me to deal with uh, the madness of this world. You know, I would say it's helped my imagination. It's helped me escape things when, I, when necessary. And once I started actually writing myself, physically writing myself, I realized that writing was going to be a part of my healing process, if that makes sense. Anyone who's an artist knows what I'm talking about. You know, you write, you create art, and you hope that other people pay attention to it, but the, at the core, it's about, I gotta get this out of my system. I gotta say this. And was I terrified? I mean, for me, it started when I was a young poet. I think poetry was an entry point for me. Two of my 13 books are poetry books, but the poetry, when I started hearing poets like Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez and Amir Baraka and folks like that, and them just speaking honestly, about what was going on in their world, their lives. You know, I said, well, you know, all the beat writers, you know, like Ginsburg, Kerouac, and people like that. I was like, I want to write like that, where it's just free. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and I realized, you know what, this can be a part of my healing process because I'm a survivor of violence and abuse, and poverty is a form of violence. Poverty is a form of violence. Poverty is a form of violence. You know, having to live in roach or rat infested tenements, which is what I grew up in, that affects your psyche. And I realized I needed to use writing to process what had happened to my life. Does that make sense to you all? You know, and at some point I had to push back, push away the fear of, well, what are people gonna think about what I say? Because I said, man, I'm trying to save my life and this art form that I have is a part of saving my life, you know? Wow. I, yeah, what advice do you give young writers? I mean, I'm sure people come to you that all the time and say, how do I become a writer? What do I do? I think, I think um, one reason why I married my wife and there's many reasons. Um, she is a student of dance. She's been dancing since she was four years old. And when I met her, her knowledge of dance, of choreography, of musical, we share a love of musicals. I said, man, this is amazing. Like, this is someone who loves it. And I, I don't think you can be any art type of artist if you don't actually study the art form that you're a part of. You know, and like, and, and, uh, you know, I just think you have to study. Like. Am I mad at the fact that when I was growing up, I didn't have any black or Latinx or Asian or Native American or women writers? Absolutely, absolutely. Or any queer writers? Absolutely, absolutely. And how are you gonna leave all these people out? You know what I'm saying? But what I don't regret is that in high school, I fell in love with Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe and Chaucer and, and, and Voltaire and people like that, you know what I'm saying? And so I can say that I'm rooted in some amazing writers, and then when I got to college and I discovered all these other writers, I'm like, word, it's really on now because I see people who look like me doing this work, and I can do it too. And so I think that no matter what your art form is, you have to study that art form. 
You can't take that for granted, and you got to do a deep dive into it, you know. And it's like people, <laughs> like I love James Baldwin. You know what I'm saying? I love James Baldwin. Like to me, this is the this is the pinnacle of how you write essays. James Baldwin. It's almost like he's writing sermons. Am I right? Yes. You know, you read the fire next time on those native sons. This is this is you know. You can tell that Baldwin was a child minister at one point. You can tell Baldwin grew up in Harlem. You can tell that he was rooted in the black culture of Harlem. But you also can tell that Baldwin traveled overseas, and so he had an expansive vocabulary. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I won't lie to you. I want to be better than Baldwin. I want to be better than Langston. I want to be better than these folks. Will I get that? I don't know, but I got to aspire to, but I can't do that if I don't actually know their work. You know what I mean? And you got to constantly be writing. You know, I, I was talking to a writer in Philadelphia the other day. She said that she's, she's, she's about to turn 40, and she said, is, is it too late for me? I reminded her, Toni Morrison did not start writing novels in a very serious way until she was 40 years old. It's never too late. If you really want to write, if you really want to paint, if you really want to be an artist, you got to do it. But you got to study your craft. You know what I'm saying? And you got to get out there. And she started talking about, you know, um, um, this fear thing and, you know, uh, uh, not, and she was not connected to communities. You got, if you're a writer, young or older, or arts of any kind, you got to be connected to communities. Like, one reason why I love writing books, but the part that I now hate more than ever after 13 books is that isolation for long periods of time. I need people. I need people. I need people. I, this is what I need. You know what I'm saying? Which is why I belong to multiple communities. You know, it's like I get something from the vegan community, the hip hop community, the yoga community, because it all informs my art. And the other thing I say, no matter what kind of artist you are, if you're a writer or any other kind of visual artist, whatever, you can't just hang out with writers. Like, I'm glad my wife is not a writer. I'm glad she's a dancer because she gives me a whole different vocabulary listening to her as a dancer. Then we go see films, we go, go to galleries and museums. You know what I'm saying? Because I want to learn from all these different spaces. And I think if you're going to be a writer or any kind of artist, the world, the world's got to be your, 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 your headphones. I know a lot of us love to wear headphones. I got my headphones in my pocket. But you know, when I'm on the subways in New York City, I like take them things out because I want to hear what's being said. I want to feel the energy. You feel what I'm saying? When I'm in DC, I can feel the energy of the DMV. Like, okay, this is why people in DC, the DMV are so into go-go. There's a certain energy that moves through here. You know what I'm saying? But if you're disconnected as a writer, as an artist, I think it's going to affect the kind of work that you create. You know what I'm saying? Wow. You know, I, I want to open it up to people in the audience, but first, just a couple of, of fun questions, because we've gotten kind of heavy, so I just want okay. to And Kevin, by the way, Kevin Powell made a real point to say to me, I don't want to know anything that you're going to ask me before the start, so if any of these are tough or any of these cause you'd have to think for a moment. That's good. That's okay. And I don't know a lot, so I'll say I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no you don't say it. Don't say the <laughs> Well, you're, you're a lover of books, you're a bibliophile. If you had to be stranded with one book, what would that book be? The Autobot from Malcolm X, period. Changed my life. Most important thing I've in my life. Most important thing I've in my life. It, 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 I cried when I put the book down. So let me, let me ask you, I, I asked uh, Colin Kaepernick that very question, and he said the autobiography of Malcolm X. Wow. Barack Obama said the autobiography of Malcolm X. So a range of us was Yeah, there. Tom Thomas, my co-host at the Collision, said autobiography of Malcolm X. What is it about that book it's that what, connects so intimately with people? It's what uh, Ozzie Davis said when he gave the eulogy for Malcolm X. He was our shining black prince. There's no other way to say it. I mean, you know, I can say it. Um, Malcolm was a bad dude. He was a handsome dude. He was someone who has an eighth grade education. When he went to prison, he said he couldn't even read his own handwriting. You know what I'm saying? His nickname the first year he was in jail was Satan because he had such a volcanic temper. Well, I could relate to that because I had a volcanic temper coming up. I get it. 
you know, but then he gets a mentor in prison, and then he gets the connection from his family to the nation of Islam outside of prison, and then he spends those seven years becoming self-taught, reading, starting with the dictionary. You know, that blew my mind. I said, if Malcolm could do that was in prison for seven years, I have no excuse for the rest of my life to read, study, and travel, mm. which is a campaign we've created with my group. Hashtag read, study, travel. You know what I'm saying? And so I remember at 18 years old reading Malcolm's autobiography. Malcolm said, if you wore a watch, I saw wearing a watch. He said he used to mark things down with a red pen. I was, I can't, in my pocket, to this day, because of Malcolm, a red pen. That's Malcolm X. This is, you were talking about 30 years ago, reading this book. Um, Malcolm said things like, you know, no idle time. I mean, I just think that he was such an incredible example of human redemption. You know what I mean? And, you know, when we see black folks fighting each other, I remind people Malcolm's father was African-American, his mother was West Indian from Grenada. You know what I'm saying? He had his bloodlines why we should not be fighting each other. You know what I'm saying? And also the fact that he could change over and over again. When he went to Mecca and he came back and he said, you know what? I'm not gonna view white sisters and brothers the way I previously viewed white sisters and brothers. You know what I'm saying? He was saying if, they, if we can get a shift in philosophy, you know, we can get rid of this thing called racism. He said I will work with anybody who's about justice. And so he was constantly evolving. I actually, you know, Bell Hooks said it in one of her books, she believes that if Malcolm had lived, he would have actually become a pro-feminist man. You know what I mean? He would have kept evolving because he was always intellectually curious. That's what I got from Malcolm. Never stop questioning. Hey, Brother Copeland. All right, that, that's, that's one of my questions. Second one, you, you talk about music so much in the book. When you have to work and it's serious, what music do you turn to? You know what's crazy? I don't, I can't, I can't write to hip hop. <laughs> and I'm a diehard hip hop head. I just can't write to hip hop. I, I need like, I'm a jazz head. I'm a serious jazz head now. Um, and it's been for years. I want to thank Sam Anderson, who's my mentor at the new school back in the early 90s. I was his assistant. And I was out of control, y'all. I was just wild, man. Every time he left the office, you know what I'm saying. You remember me back in the day. <laughs> Every time he left the office, he had it on the jazz station, WBGO. I would switch it to the hip hop station. He would come back and bang on his radio. He's like, yo, why is my radio broken? And this went on for about a few months. And I finally said, look, man, all this stuff sounds like, you know, it's all instrumental. It don't mean nothing to me. Like, what is this? And he said, all right, I'm going to give you a suggestion. John Coltrane and Miles Davis. Start with a Love Supreme and Kind of Blue. And I was like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I couldn't even tell you a song. I couldn't tell you the instruments in the song, anything like that. But gradually, I started listening to jazz. And this is going my vibe years, actually. And don't laugh, y'all, because you're gonna get knowledge anywhere you can. Bridget Fonda was in a movie called Point of No Return in the early 1990s. The soundtrack for that movie was a woman's voice that was so haunting. I was like, who is that singer? It was Nina Simone. And I was like, okay, who's Nina Simone? You know what I mean? That was my entry to Nina Simone. So don't knock pop culture completely. I learned about Nina Simone because of a movie with Bridget Fonda. But that's how, so what do I write to? I write to jazz. And I write to, I love classical music. Why do I love classical music? Because as a kid, all those cartoons had classical music and it stuck with me. Last question and then definitely want to turn it over to folks here. If you could sit down with somebody, living or dead, for 60 minutes, and you've got sodium pentothal, so they have to tell you the truth. And I want to push back a little bit and just say, Mal you can't say Malcolm X. I was that. Okay, who would it be that you would speak to for 60 minutes? Wow. Um, in my last book, 
and I'm just going to tell you the ending. It's called The Education of Kevin House, my memoir. The last chapter is called Finding My Father. And um, I found out, the book came out in 2015. Yeah, 2015. I found out in 2013 that he had died in 2001. Um, the reason why I went looking for him is because I, I was able to make my first trip to Africa in 2012. And I remember, you know, when I got to Africa, of course, I'm, I'm emotional. I went to Nigeria, and um, this is before all the kidnapping of the young women. Um, but I was hearing, yo, crazy stuff already. But I remember them saying to me, as I got off the plane, welcome home. And that just hit me. And any black person who's ever been to Africa, you know what I'm talking about. You know, even if you're 400 years removed, you feel this. You know what I'm saying? And I remember saying to myself, if I got back, I did my DNA, and I found out that my mother and my family side was from, from Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. And she asked me a question that the, the, uh, genial, the person who did the DNA test, she said, well, what about your father's side? I was like, I saw my father two or three times when I was growing up. You know what I mean? Until I was eight years old, and that was it. He was out. You know what I'm saying? They were not married. That's what it was. And um, when I got back from Africa, I decided I'm going to find my father. And we kept looking for him. I, I, uh, I met someone who's a genealogist on Facebook. She said, I'll help you. This woman who is a genealogist, she's half part black, part white, part Native American. And she had been uh, in different homes in her lifetime. So she dedicated her life to helping people find their identities. And we spent like two years trying to find where my father was, how old. We didn't know how old he was, anything like that. We just knew he was from South Carolina. And um, one day we finally hit it. And I decided, OK, I'm going to tell my mom. So I'm going to drive down to South Carolina. I spent Thanksgiving with her in 2013. I said, Mom, I found my father. And my mother did what any Christian, Bible-loving black woman would do. She cursed profusely. Because <laughs> women don't forget hurt. You know? And it kind of hurt my father, Dave, because he basically had told her she lied to him. He ain't my son. Yeah, word. You know what I'm saying? So I had to say to my mother in that moment, Mom, I just need to see where I come from the other side. You know, I need to understand if I grow my hair out, why was my hair red? Why is my hair red? Where did that come from? You know what I'm saying? And I'm very clear, Mom, that you are my mother and my father because you've always been my mother and my father. I'm not abandoning you. You know what I mean? I had to make that clear to her. And then three, me and my friend, Cynical, she's a filmmaker, drove to South Carolina, um, I won't say what part, um, and we went right to uh, the church and the cemetery where his, his um, uh, what do you call it? The tombstones was plot. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. I kept looking for his last name. I saw other people with the last name. I kept looking and looking and looking. And it was like an hour and I was about to give up. And then I finally found his name. And I dropped to my knees and I just started crying. For someone I didn't even know. And I started talking to this plot. And that's the 60 minutes that I would love to have. Because wow. I'd like to know why. You feel what I'm saying? Because if you read my work throughout my, my writing life, that's been a recurring theme. If you look at hip hop, a lot of young black males through the generations have talked about that absent father thing. And years later, I realized what is the legacy of slavery? You know, it's a legacy of many things that have happened to our community. I'm very clear about that, you know what I'm saying? But uh, that's the conversation I would like to have, if I could ever have it. And what I found out when I was down there, and I started meeting all these people who were my brothers and sisters that I know existed and other relatives, is that when he was dying, my father kept saying, can you tell, I was the only child that he had that was up north. You know, can you, can you? and they thought, because of his sudden accident, they thought my name was Calvin instead of Kevin. And um, I, I just wish that I could, that's the conversation, that's the conversation.
he knew, because he knew what his mother went through, he knew who she was. And the one thing that keeps coming up as I write this biography of Tupac was how incredibly strong a woman of Fanny Shakur was. You know what I mean? Over and over again, you know, particularly during her years when she was in the Black Panther Party. You know, and it, it, it's, um, and I know that had an impact on him, but I also know that what had an impact on him is that he wanted to make money. He didn't want to be poor. They were poor. You know, they were poor, and hip-hop became his ticket out. And for a lot of us, the day he knows for sports is either sports or music that for a lot of right. young men of color, and then you end up following the script that's been given to you. You know what I'm saying? And I remember, um, and I write about it. If y'all remember the cover story, you can look it up. It's a famous cover story with Suge, Dre, Snoop, and Tupac on the cover. It's a reenactment of the casino uh, movie cover. Casino, right? Casino. With Joe Pesci and De Niro and those Yeah, Casino. And that Tupac that I interviewed for that cover story was very different than Tupac that I interviewed when he was in jail just nine or 10 months before. But this Tupac with the cover story was now on Death Row Records, run by Suge Knight. So you see the influences that were happening. And I just feel like he never had a moment to have, you know, a consistent positive male influence around him, you know, that was gonna, and then, you know, at that point, I remember interviewing him, and I was like, it was the last time I actually spoke to him. I said, man, I don't know what's gonna happen now. You know, I have no idea. And that's the tragedy. I think that's why some people are holding on. Even when I was in a, a cab earlier today, the driver and I were talking, I mentioned Pac, and I was working on his book. Everyone keeps saying, well, Tupac's still alive, right? Because people are holding on to something. Yeah, right. I'm like, yep, he's just alive. His Elvis is alive. In Africa, he is fully alive. In Africa, he is fully he is alive. Fully they got photos and everything, y'all. But I also think he said something about how we have this need. We look for heroes and sheroes outside of ourselves. And we hang on to these people or whatever we need in our own lives. You know what I'm saying? Because I have a lot of people reach out to me because I knew Tupac and writing a book about Tupac as if I'm Tupac myself. I'm like, I'm not Pac, homie. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I've lived beyond that. And, you know, but I, I just, I don't know. All I can say is I use Tupac as an example. The one thing I point to is in that prison interview when he said he did not sexually assault a young lady in a hotel. He maintained that to the day he died. But what he did say is very important is that I didn't stop my male friends from doing anything to that young lady. So there's a sense of responsibility and vulnerability that I wish that more of us as men. He was 23 when he said that. You know what I'm saying? And so I try to find lessons in his life as short as it was. So, hey Rebecca Copeland, how are you? Yes sir. Oh, uh, Thank he, you, uh, WPFW. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That little thing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to commend you because you articulated to the coach. Hey, hey, speak up. Brother, I want to commend you for that. How are you doing? I want to commend you for how you articulated to the coach yesterday. Uh, that's, I just came in here just to say I want to commend you. Thank you so much. Dave, you came down on the right side of that. Tried to. <laughs> you came down on the right side of that because when I saw what I was hearing that was happening, I was that close. I wanted to actually call in that show. Mm. In life, you got to pick a side. Yeah. You got to pick a side. You can't. What Tom was trying to say, I seen him up on YouTube. I wanted to tell him this. Let it go. Coach stuck his foot in his mouth, let him live with it. Mm -hmm. That's what I just come down with to say. But, and also, this young man like he wants to know, where you from in South Carolina? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Yankee. I'm from up north. My family is from Jasper County, South Carolina, uh, Richland, South Carolina, Richland, South Carolina, about 30 minutes from Savannah, Georgia. 
down. Yeah. We low country. We proud Gucci's. Before the next speaker, just to explain the context on the radio show, oh, thank you. We were talking about Serena Williams, and uh, one of the people who co-hosted the show with me was saying that uh, that she basically misbehaved and that after he said he loved her. Yeah, first saying he loved her, and. Um, and Kevin Powell, what he did was he broke down the language that we use, particularly when we talk about anger and black women and how destructive that language is. And he took apart the language that was being used to describe Serena Williams. And it got heated, but it's the kind of heat that brings light. And I was frankly proud just to be sitting there with Kevin. And it allowed me to talk to my friend, the coach, because he's an old friend of mine, it allowed me then to talk to him afterwards about how we formulate these thoughts and ideas. So thank you for that, Kevin. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to jump on that bandwagon. I was what I was listening to the radio show, and uh, I heard the coach. I'd never heard of you, uh, Mr. What I do? I, and, <laughs> you know, I'm. I haven't of heard of you either. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to put you down. I'm just okay. of a generation that wasn't you know, geared towards uh, listening to hip-hop all that much, yes, sir. let alone read vibe. Yes, sir. But uh, after that show, and the way you put uh, Coach in his position, you know, to, 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 to pull the covers off of what he was coming up with, I said, I got to see this part. Wow. And that's you. why I'm here. And I wanted to also give you this file, uh, which I think You'll find interesting as, as source material oh, wow. since you're a writer. Wow, thank and I, you. I want to give it to you now because I know you're going to get mobbed when this is over with. Thank you, sir. And uh, maybe just keep keep on keeping up what you're doing because uh, you broke my eyes to a lot of things. Just in the African the slave sales sites in Washington, D.C. was just handed me. This is powerful. Very yeah, I, I, now, that, that particular Thank you. I'm just map, going that particular map, I've handed it out to some of the early arrival, arrivals here. And that uh, the, the, the big map of, of that is in the School of Divinity at Howard University, wow. which I attended. I didn't graduate, but I worked there for about five years. And it was, it was, a, it was a blessing, and it put some change in my pocket. And I, you know, I was a vacuum cleaner while I was there. And anything they had, I, I, well, I was on security. I was a special police officer. Yes, sir. I had to provide security. So I was always there. And I just, you know, collected all that stuff. And I tried to disseminate it in events such as this to my fellow Washingtonians and neighbors. Yes, sir. Because if you go to the White House, you go to the, to the archives, you go to Pennsylvania Avenue, you would not know what the real story is behind those monuments yes. and that boulevard and how integral all of this is to where we're at now. This country was based on genocide That's right. of the native population and slavery. That's right. And every crevice, the, the DNA of this country this is why we're in such a dilemma in which you were talking about the presidents, because this is what the country was designed to be. The Constitution uh, guarantees and codifies all of this stuff. And uh, the courts keep on making it legal. 
So you can't go to jail, even though you're ripping uh, uh, black people off. We're, we're permanent, second-class citizens. A, a large portion of, of people who classify themselves as white are also second-class citizens. They don't know it because they they say, well, at least you're not black. And that's how they're getting away with all this crap. And uh, I'm gonna I'm I'm get off my, my, my soapbox and let, let, let you go back. But keep on keeping on with Thank your you, Thank you, Thank you for the education. Thank yeah. you so much. I see a couple of hands. Any one questions, I'm gonna do what's called progressive stacking and move you to the front. <laughs> Otherwise, I will call on the gentleman in the Eagles sweatshirt. In Washington with an Eagles shirt on. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. That's a man. That's a man. But the question is, uh, what extent, when you have interviews with people, uh, is your book based on the truth on what these people say? Mm. Um, and what is your truth? Or how far do you go to know the truth, and, and and the people that you interview, what they tell you? That's a great question. I mean, I pride myself from the very beginning. I started writing professionally when I was 20 years old. I was a boy, and I was also an activist at the same time. And for me, the way I define activism is two things: servant to the people, and be a truth teller. And so, for me, the writing is simply an extension of the activism. You know, this work is not about me, it's about informing people. I, it's not just about Tupac Shakur, but I'm, my life has been spent interviewing people who folks will never hear of. You know, because my training didn't come in music journalism, it came in news reporting for black newspapers around the country, Afro-American, Amsterdam News, cities, some places like that. So that's the basis of how I operate. How can I get at the truth? Even, when it's, even as I'm doing the Tupac Shakur book, I said to myself at a certain point, yeah, I can go interview, I could get Jada Pinkett, I can, Jada Pinkett Smith, I can get Madonna, all these celebrities, and Tupac knew, but you know who's most interesting to me? The famous people who folks will never know who really knew Tupac Shakur. Because I have a responsibility to tell their truths because their truth will help to illuminate his truth. And so, you know, if you ask me on a technical level, I don't twist words around stuff like that. What people say to me, that's what comes out. Now what I do is interpret stuff because that responsibility as a creator, as a writer, as a creative writer, I think, okay, if someone's saying something to me, how can I put, where do I put this that'll make the most sense for folks as they're reading it, if that makes sense to you, you know what I mean? Because literally when you're writing, it's like being a visual artist, you're painting a picture. You know, would you want to paint an accurate picture? And for me, because I know how distorted, as the brother just said, eloquent history has been, part of the job of a writer is to correct the distortions in history. You know, and right, whether we realize or not, right now is history because 50 years from now, someone will be reading something that was written or created today. I'm responsible to tell the truth as best as possible. So I take that very seriously. And I would say to you, sir, and to folks out there, uh, I take it so seriously, it's been to my detriment financially as a writer. There's a lot of stuff I could have done. I've turned money down for like, I can't write like that. I can't do that. I have no interest in that. A lot of people ask me all the time, Ken, how come you have the media all the time? Because I have no interest in being a soundbite person just saying stuff just to be on television. I don't care about that kind of stuff. What I care about is the truth. You know, which is why I've enjoyed the interviews that I've done here in D.C. this week with your station, the Pacific Radio Station, with Radio One this morning, because they actually let you talk and tell the truth. You know what I'm saying? It's not just two seconds and then you're off, you know what I mean? And so I take that very seriously. Um, you know, I have a responsibility on a real simple level. The first writer I ever met, even though she doesn't physically write, the first storyteller I ever met, even though she doesn't 
falling cause of that is my mother. And the one thing my mother always said to me when I was growing up, which we've heard in the black church, the truth shall set you free. I took that very seriously. And my mother always said to me, a liar is a thief. A liar is a thief. A liar is a thief. So that's ingrained in me by my mama and them. You feel what I'm saying? And just because I happen to be a professional writer, I've not lost track of the fact that I have a responsibility to the truth. And so, for example, when the sister got up at Congressional Black Caucus today and said, you know, I want to raise a question about the sexism of men who claim to be about the community, the whole panel got quiet. And I said, you know what? I could hear the truth tellers in my head, bell hooks, Audre Lord, Evansley, Gloria Steinem say to me, men have got to say something. So the truth came out of my mouth, which was, hey, y'all, we got a problem here. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the truth that we have to deal with. You know, and so sometimes the truth is going to make people uncomfortable, but the truth is the truth is the truth. And for me, my truth is rooted in the fact that I'm against all forms of oppression. If any group is oppressed, I have a responsibility to tell the truth about what they're dealing with and how they can challenge that. That's how I feel. It ain't just about me as a heterosexual, so-called cisgender, straight black male or male, but I got to talk about the truth for all people. You feel what I'm saying? That's where I come from. Mm. And yes, ma'am. And then I'll definitely... Y'all all right out there? All right. Hey, Jessica. Um, so, and I've known you through a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Um, almost 20, probably 20 plus years now. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I will never seem to know this answer, so I won't ask it today. Um, what do you hope that your legacy will be? Wow. Um, I think I say it is that, uh, do you have the book? Yes, I do. Can I see my own, I don't know what I wrote. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny, I don't know how other writers do it, but I, you edit these books so often that I actually never read them again. Uh, and people say, yo, page so-and-so of this book, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, but at the end of the introduction to this book, uh, this, is what I, this is what I feel, Jessica, and I'll just read it to y'all. What I said many years ago, I say again this moment. I only want to see my name, my byline, in a magazine or a newspaper or on the cover of a book one time. Anything beyond that is more than I could have ever imagined or expected given where I've come from. What I said many years ago, I say again this moment. Writing is as important to me as breathing. What I said many years ago, I say again this moment. I just want to be a good man, a good writer, a good helper, and a good servant to others. And I just want all of us to be free, truly free. That is my prayer, that is my dream, and that will never change. And so, it's real simple for me. Um, 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 I don't care about awards. Uh, people will tell you, my wife will tell you, that I put the stuff under the bed. When I get stuff, people hand me class and stuff like that. I don't want, I, I'm probably gonna put my will, don't name no streets after me, no buildings after me, nothing. I don't care about that stuff. Um, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that when I was younger, in my 20s, I experienced MTV and Vibe and all this so-called celebrity and that kind of stuff. And it actually turned me off, to be really honest with y'all. And so, it's not about me, I just wanna help people. That's what I wanna do, and, it, it, and, and you know, I see Brother Ravel out there, you know, and he's a dynamic young writer. So raise your hand, brother, you know what I mean? Please support young people like that, you know what I'm saying, just out of college in May. And what do I want my legacy to be, quote unquote? You know, that Ravel, you're in a position where I am and you're reaching back to a younger writer 20 years from now, just have the same conversations with me 
that I have with you right now. That's the most important thing to me. You feel what I'm saying? That's the most important thing.
you gotta create your force field, like you said. Like, what's your force field? I'm lucky, you know, I never thought I was gonna get married, you know what I'm saying? But now that I'm married, even if I didn't get married in the legal sense, I realized that it's important to have people in your life who actually really love you. You know what I'm saying? Because I had a lot of toxic people around me. It's worse. It's bad enough you're dealing with a toxic environment where you're dealing with the racism as a black person, but then you got people around you who are cray cray as well. Nah. You know what I mean? So I think that you got we gotta make a commitment to, to self-care. Can y'all say self-care? Self-care. That goes for all of us. You know what I'm saying? That goes for all of us. How do you identify yourself with your multiple identities? What do you do to take care of yourself on a regular basis? You know what I mean? That's that's important. And and, and you know, I think let me say this, because one of the things that bothered me about the whole Serena Williams uh, controversy, everyone kept focusing on she's angry, or calling her angry. Well, you got a right to be angry if you've dealt with oppression in your lifetime. You know what I'm saying? And so what I also feel, you got to fight for your authentic self, because people will try to get you to not be a whole human being. They try to reduce you to something. You know, like there's something wrong with you. I'm like, no. All I say to people is one thing that I had learned in my own lifetime is proactive anger, which is I take this energy that I feel and I turn it into my art. You know what I'm saying? I turn it into my activism. I go organize. Then there's destructive anger where we just go, we feel the hate and then we go around and hate other people or we go around and hurt other people. So let's make a distinction between proactive anger and reactionary anger, which is why I can stand here in 2018 and say with no doubt whatsoever, I love all people no matter who you are. You know what I mean? But that was a journey for me, a process of me, because I also had to go through my own healing process. You feel what I'm saying? You know? And so I just think the self-care thing, how many of y'all got to, how many of y'all do one thing that's about self-care or self-love out there? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. You know, and it's gotta be, it's gotta be commitment to that. And then you know, brother, you know, the one thing I'll say about your poetry, I'll say it publicly, I love the fact that you're telling your truth. Keep telling your truth. Keep telling your truth. Don't let anyone tell you, and I shared with Ravel earlier, I was in the creative writing class in college. You know, I'm the only black student in the class. I had a white professor who just was culturally incompetent. Let's just call it what it is. And I wrote a poem, I wrote a short story actually that was about inner city, my experience. They tell you in creative writing class, write from what you know. I'm like, well son, I know the hood real well. You know what I'm saying? And so what do I know? I know rats and roaches. What did I love in high school? Edgar Allan Poe. And he had all the stories about monsters and all that. Well, the monsters in my life were called rats and roaches. You know what I'm saying? So that was in, what, was in my short story. She was so horrified by what I wrote, the only feedback she could give me was saying, said, she said, you should say shat instead of quote unquote shit. <laughs> and I sat there, and I remember thinking to myself, she had me doubting the beautiful vernacular that my people speak that I call poetry. And then I should say Shaft. And I said, you know what? Hell no. Because when I go back to DC or Brooklyn or North Jersey City, we don't say Shaft, we say shit. And it sounds dope when we say it. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to find, I had to say part of my self-care is what Shakespeare said to, to thine own self. That's right. You feel me? Can we take a couple more questions before we sign book? Please buy the books, y'all. Please buy the books, y'all. Please buy the books. Oh, who, who has a, okay. Hey, sir. Uh, thank you, sir, for all of your sharing of your presence with us. My name is William Taft. I'm right here in D.C., yes, and sir. your story you share with me reflects mine. I, I found where my father was, mm. and he lived in the house. Wow. And they wouldn't let me know he was my father. And wow. He, and he died, and I was the only one at the funeral. So your story really touched me. Wow. So, but now I was living in the South, now, leave them off Carolina. But I, 
that's going to touch on that. But this year is Martin Luther King's anniversary is passing. When he died, I was a kid, 17 years old, and I made a, uh, a promise that Grandma said, go outside and whisper to the angels what you need. Mm. You always whisper to God, give your message to me. Yes. So Lily Boyd told me that. So I, I said that I want to be like Dr. King because that's my only hero like you had. Mm. So I want to be like Dr. King when I grow up. Now fast forward 64 years later, there's a song I wrote with another minister of music. It's the U.S. Boulder's twin national anthem, for a more perfect union. Has two songs, USA, let's register and vote. USA, let's get out to vote. Then you just spoke about Black Caucus. Since 2000, I've been going up there to Black Caucus to tell them, let's honor Dr. King with a song about the Voting Rights Act. None of them get it. They didn't get it. So my question to you, sir, will you please write my story about that song and, edu and educate what's well, informing people about the song? Anyone in here, pull up YouTube, William Tab PSA. On there, you William Tab what? PSA. PSA. Right. On there, you see me singing one verse of the song. This was done the December before um, 2008 before Obama ran. Howard University reclaimed democracy conference. They were saying, we gotta get young people. I said, they're not listening to you all. You don't have no music to give them a message. They're not gonna get it. So all the cameras followed me out. I said, I don't do interviews. No, this is about the people, the people's song. So I, he made me talk about it and made me sing a verse. When you pull me up on there, you see me saying, uh, hi America, this is William Tab. And I want you to know that the founding fathers gave us all an interactive gift. But it's of no use unless you activate it. It's called the American vote. And we activate it. What does it do? We create a more perfect union. Now, that's the message I want us all to get on. It's going to make our message manifest in America. So that song has the message inside of it for the young people of, to empower them as the governed. When those young people stood out there and said, you know, don't keep me at my school no more, and we're gonna vote, I want my song to be explained to them, here's your education, why you should vote. Now go do it. You'll be able to write my story in a way no one else can because of your DNA. Yes, you, because you can understand my background, my, my, my commitment to our people. It's like, wow, I thought about Oprah. I said, well, maybe she can do it, maybe not. But you, being here today and watching and listening to you. Can I go to YouTube and watch the video first? Sure. Okay. Sure. I can, share, I can share it on social media? Yes. You sure? No, stop till we talk. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Tess. Right. One more question? Yes. Uh, um, you good, Laura? Last question? Last question. Last question. It's really a comment, and I've been sitting here trying to formulate my thoughts. I listened to Dave Zyron, and I really enjoy your show. And I was listening Thursday, yesterday, just to half of, half of the show. And I remember when the coach was spewing all of that, I started feeling, here's another black man putting a black woman down. But when you came back with what you, and I know you got heated because you called him a, a sexist pig. Um, I apologize, though. That's okay. But it, felt, it felt like, you just said it, it felt like love. And so I want to thank you for that on behalf of myself as a black woman and the black women here. Can I say one last thing? Um, what, what, you want to say last thing? Can I say a last thing too? Yeah. And then you get the last thing? Yeah. I just, just want to say this. I, I'm a, a little bit younger than Kevin Powell. And so and I, I've said this to him before, but like 
The first slam poem I ever heard in my entire life, which was life-changing, was Kevin Powell on The Real World saying it, and that got me into slam poetry and just opened up this whole world to me because I was living in New York City and found out there were clubs and places and whatnot. Um, I was also a teenager when that first issue of Vibe came out uh, in my dorm room. I still have that uh, trench on the cover like this and all the rest of it. And, and so I've spent my life following your writing over the course of 20 plus years, and it's been a gift. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Wow. That's all. Thank you. And, um, especially folks that write out there. It is, it's, uh, writing's not easy. Writing's very hard. It can be very lonely, you know what I'm saying? Um, and then if you're around long enough, and I never I never thought I'd get to 13 books. I, I didn't even imagine it after a couple books. Um, there's times when you feel great success. There's times when you feel like no one's reading your work at all. And so I just want to say thank you for anyone who actually even bothers to read anything I write. Seriously. You know, seriously, because I don't take it for granted. Because um, in a lot of ways, I'm still very much that little boy who didn't know that I could actually be a writer, because I saw no examples of it around me, you know what I'm saying? And then to Brother Taft and to everyone out there, since it did come up, I want to make it very clear, you know, even though I said that voting is not the only thing that we need to do, we do need to vote, you know? I just, you know, looking at this room, if you just look at this room, there's just, everyone in this room can say, there's a time when whatever identity you have was not given the right to vote, didn't have the right to vote. So. You know, I think about the election that we just had in New York State. You know, we're lucky if 30, 40% of the people actually vote on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? And so I just want to stress that, you know, but I also think that we need more people to run for office who are truly progressive and truly about the people. Uh, that's important. You know, I just, it can't be, we don't need any more career politicians. I feel like when I see somebody do a running for office now, not everyone, but I feel like it's no different than folks just trying to get the music industry. You know what I'm saying? It's like the latest hustle. So we need people to actually really are about service to be in office and really have a have care about the people. That, that's important. And then the, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, just this, um, you know, people always ask, well, what do I do? What do I do? How can I affect change? Every movement is local. It's local. Wherever you are, you got to do something in your local community. You know what I mean? If you really love D.C. or PG County or Austin, Virginia, wherever you come from, the simple question I ask you wherever I go, what do you do in your community? And I want to bring it back to the folks who started this bookstore, who run this bookstore. Clearly, this is a bookstore for the community, and so they don't have to do this. this is, as I said to, to, to Brother Jake earlier, I have a lot of friends who run bookstores around the country. I said, you must really love what you do. Laura must really love what she does. Chris and all the folks here must really love what they do because they're interested in this community, you know what I mean, in the city of Washington. And so what do you do? You start an institution like this. You start, you build something, you create something, and you open it up to people, you know? That's what I think is important. That's how we begin to affect change. And let's be connected to each other. And let's not let these divisions, let's not let these divisions, these divisions. I mean, like, you know, when I say my sister, brother, fellow human being, I really mean that in my bones, you know what I mean? Enough of the racism, enough of the sexism, enough of the transphobia and homophobia, all the ugliness that we see that, that divides people. And if you're one of those people, even if you're sitting here today and you got some phobia about a different group of people, ask yourself, where did this phobia come from? Ask yourself, what do you really know about this person who's different than me? And then ask yourself, do I actually even know who I am in totality? And secondly, do I have the courage to learn about people who are different than me? Are y'all with me out there? You know what I mean? Because the folks on the right want us to be at each other's throats. I can't say that enough, but we've got to find 
this is the key thing, love, love, love. Love is the most revolutionary thing that we can do, sisters and brothers. And as I said to Brother Jake, when I walked into this store, I felt the aura, the spirit, I felt the love in here. And we need to multiply this and take this around the country, y'all. This is what we need to do. We need love. Can y'all say love? love? You know what I mean? And so in the spirit of the black church, do me a favor as we, yeah, y'all bought them books. <laughs> so we got sell books at the bookstore. In the spirit of the black church, do me a favor and meet three people that you don't know. Just exchange hugs with them. Can y'all do that? Yeah. And thank y'all and peace to y'all. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin Powell. Thank you, Solid State Books. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now we're back on the Edge of Sports podcast, and I've got some choice words about Vontae Davis. Okay, look, a retired football player once told me in 2005 that no one walks away from the NFL. We only limp or are carried off. The very few exceptions to that rule back then Those who left the game on their own terms, like Jim Brown or Barry Sanders, were considered legends for having the courage to say goodbye. In recent years, that perception has changed slightly, as some players with years left on their odometer, Chris Borland, DeBrickishaw Ferguson, and Hussein Abdallah come to mind, have opted for early retirement. This mini-wave of younger retirees is motivated by the science we now have about concussions and the acknowledged effects that the sport can have on the brain. This past weekend, however, early retirement was taken to another level as Buffalo Bills cornerback Vontae Davis retired at halftime. In a move that shocked and roiled the NFL, the 10-year veteran just walked away from his hapless team after the second quarter with the Bills down 28-6 to the L.A. Chargers. He got dressed in his street clothes during halftime, and he dipped. Then after the game ended, Davis posted a statement on Instagram, all set to go, that folks should seek out and read. Powerful statement that he no longer had the warrior mentality to play the game. Now by walking away, it must be noted, Davis also said goodbye to the $4 million he was due to be paid for the rest of the season. Immediately, the condemnation started flying across the football world. Former coach Rex Ryan thundered, This is a joke, you don't quit. And another ESPN commentator, Damian Woody, said, There's nothing funny about this. My blood is boiling. I want to fight this guy right now. Woody also called it a punk move, saying, What kind of punk does stuff like that? Now, Bonte Davis's teammate, Raphael Bush, said after the game, I think I did lose a little respect for him as a man. Now, manhood in the NFL is, of course, defined by a willingness to get hurt and hurt others even if your heart isn't in it. This is what Davis called that warrior mentality. In the eyes of the NFL, Vontae Davis broke a sacred code, but perhaps knowing that this kind of criticism would be coming, it took a particular kind of courage for Davis to walk away when he did. 
How many others would have this kind of bravery knowing this fusillade of criticism was right around the corner? As former NFL executive Andrew Brandt tweeted, Davis retired willfully, albeit with poor timing. The vast majority of NFL players are involuntarily retired before they want to do so willingly. Hall of Fame wide receiver Chris Carter perhaps said it best and with a measure of charity when he said, there ain't no easy way to get out of this business. That last word is critical because these aren't warriors. This is a business, a business that has shown the potential to rob those who play it of their joints, their nerves, or their minds. If a player doesn't feel like they're in a position to go out there with a degree of focus, they're not only poised to hurt their team, they can hurt themselves in a way that holds no prospect for recovery. As Vontae Davis said in his statement, I shouldn't be out there anymore. That's all anyone should need to hear. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award Stand up. comes from a listener named Matt Stickland. And since he nominated somebody and wrote this out beautifully, I'm going to read it to y'all. Matt Stickland wrote, Dear Mr. Zyron, after a 10-year stint in the Navy, I found myself back at school pursuing a degree in journalism. As part of getting the most out of my time at school, I've joined the school paper as their copy editor, last year the opinions editor. Thanks in no small part to discovering you when you used to take part in the Q Sports panel. And then my subsequent discovery of your podcast, I've been trying to convince our sports editor, Josh Young, that political opinion absolutely has a place in sports writing. Maybe not in a game recap, but there is a place for the sport and political to meet. In our most recent issue, as of this writing, he asked our editor-in-chief if he could refer to teams by only the city if they have names that are based on racist stereotypes or iconography of indigenous peoples. Our editor-in-chief agreed immediately, and our paper now has an official editorial stance on team names. He also chose to write and run a timeline explaining the history of the Colin Kaepernick protests. Unlike myself, my co-workers at the paper are in their early 20s and just at the start of their journalistic careers. They're aware of the impact that language has and are aware of the responsibility they have as keepers of the public record, even if it is just a student paper. While I think they're all deserving of the spirit of this award, Josh Young is the only one who fits the criteria, and so I would like to nominate him. Nomination accepted. Congratulations, Josh Young. You are the winner of the Just Stand Up Award. Thanks to Matt Stickland. The Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And that goes to a gentleman by the name of Lynn Redden. He's the superintendent of the Onalaska Independent School District in Onalaska, Texas. And he commented about Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. And he said, when you need precision decision making, you can't count on a black quarterback. That's what he said. Lynn Redden. Now, I think I could say so much about this, but Charles Modiano, friend of the show, writer for the New York Daily News, I want to read what he tweeted because I think it just says it perfectly. Rather than uh, paraphrase what Charles said, I want to read it out. Charles wrote, There's a much deeper story than his racist view of black quarterbacks. As school superintendent, he assesses students. If this is his view of Deshaun Watson after watching Tom Savage, Brock Osweiler, TJ Yates, Ryan Mallett, Brian Hoyer, and Brandon Whedon, how is he harming all black students? 
That's exactly right. Lynn Redden has already issued an apology, but it's one of those I'm so sorry if you were offended apologies. Racists like him should not be superintendents of school districts. They should be trolls on Facebook and Twitter and social media where they belong. Get back under your bridge, Lynn Redden, and stop educating kids and sit your ass down. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. The main news I want to report on here is that Colin Kaepernick was just given the W.E.B. Du Bois Award by Harvard University. He's one of seven recipients. One of them is also Dave Chappelle. That sounds like a pretty cool award ceremony. So hopefully the podcast is going to try to get up to Harvard and peep that out. Because the combination of Kaepernick and Chappelle and Cambridge Mass sounds like a pretty good time. Congratulations, Colin Kaepernick, on a well-deserved award. Well, that's all we have this week on the show. Thank you so much to my producer. Thank you so much to everybody listening. Thank you so much to Kevin Powell and Solid State Books. For everybody out there listening, if you like the show, please leave a rating. Please write a little comment at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice, Spotify. I mean, because all of that makes a huge difference to the work that we try to do. For everybody out there listening, remember, you can always email me at edgesports at gmail.com if you also have a nomination for just stand up or just sit your ass down. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace.